When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Stories that Jay and I look at this week include, should lawyers represent all stakeholders before the Securities and Exchange Commission? What are some of the lessons learned from a very corrupt Olympics? How does a corporate culture become corrupt? Why is data minimization so critical? Extension of the MTS monitorship? Elon Musk wants out of his consent decree? A stark warning on corporate cooperation? Mike Volkov on sustainability and ESG and NFTs and the SEC, all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, returning from assignment slash vacation. Jay Rosen, uh, for This Week in FCPA, episode 294 for the week ending March 11, 2012, the Remember the Alamo edition. Yes, Jay has returned from his assignment and having fun uh, at the ABA White Collar Conference in San Francisco. We are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories um, in the Remember the Alamo edition. So, Jay, what say you? I say I remember the Alamo, and let's uh, jump right in and get to this week's first story. Well, we start with a story from the coolest guy in compliance, yes, Matt Kelly. Uh, he reported on a speech by Allison Heron Lee, SEC commissioner, where she talked about changing the responsibility of lawyers for um, Section SOC Section 307 representation. Obviously, lawyers are uh, obligated legally and ethically to represent their clients, but uh, Commissioner Lee suggested that that definition of client needs to be expanded to all stakeholders of a public corporation. Uh, that means simply beyond the shareholders or those who've invested in the company to include uh, the board of directors, senior management, employees, localities, uh, potential shareholders, third parties, and a wide variety of other uh, stakeholders. She also said that lawyers need to act as gatekeepers and that if they see something, uh, they need to uh, speak up and raise their hand and speak up to the general counsel. And if that doesn't get satisfaction, they need to go to the an appropriate person on the board, whether that be the audit committee or the chairman of the board. Um, this would be, Jay, a huge change in um, legal ethics for lawyers. Uh, we are tasked to represent our clients to the best of our ability, but if you have more than one client, you always have the possibility of a conflict between clients. And I can certainly see disharmony in a large number of stakeholder groups that she has articulated, or at least have been articulated. 
Um, I also question what the ABA's position on this is going to be. Actually, I don't need to question it. I know what it's going to be. They're going to be dead set against it uh, because they're not going to view it in the interest of their constituency. But also state bars. State bars are the regulatory body for all lawyers in the United States. I'm a member of the State Bar of Texas. And my legal and ethical obligations are set out by the state bar. And if I violate those to represent uh, public companies before the SEC, um, theoretically, I could be subject to discipline. So um, Matt wrote a pretty good piece. He and I uh, had a good chat on it in, uh, excuse me, in compliance into the weeds. Uh, if it comes to pass, it's going to be a huge change. And what I tried to articulate in the podcast was that um, I'm not saying it's good or bad at this point, but it's a it's a huge sea change and what that might pretend for legal representation going forward. And we didn't even get to the attorney-client privilege who would have that. So, Jay, uh, Andy Spaulding claims to have learned some lessons from the corrupt Olympics. Have you? Let's see. This comes from uh, the FCPA blog, and it's by Danny Hales with Professor Andy Spaulding. Megasport scandals are rich in compliance lessons. The Olympic figure skating scandal brought us back to basics. Do a risk assessment, identify red flags, conduct timely due diligence, and ensure adequate remediation. In terms of risk risk assessments, as the U.S. Department of Justice Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program tells us, among the first questions a prosecutor will ask is how has the company identified, assessed, and define its risk profile. Similarly, the DOJ Justice Manual explains that the compliance program must be, quote, designed to detect particular types of misconduct, mostly likely to occur in particular corporations' line of business, close quote. So what might an Olympic figure skating risk assessment look like? For starters, we'll have competition for highly scarce resources, the satisfaction and glory of an Olympic gold. The competitors are often children who may lack parental protection and are vulnerable to manipulation. So too are these children surrounded by third parties who may not always have the best interest of the competitors at heart. Risks in this field of competition are plain, but what about the Beijing Olympics specifically? In terms of red flags, Andrew Hayward and Tony Osborne and the Business Guide to Effective Compliance and Ethics explain that the red flag does not always mean that a risk or problem is actually present, but it signals a heightened risk of misconduct. In the context of ice skating risk assessments, consider the red flag surrounding female figure skaters in these Olympics. There are only three female athletes in the world can land quads. And surprisingly, all of them come from Russia, a country already sanctioned for state-sponsored doping. All three athletes are minors, so should should an organization respond in the face of such numerous and obvious red flags? Now let's take a look at due diligence. The Beijing Olympics require due diligence for Russian athletes generally and Russian figure skaters in particular. The Olympics already had a due diligence process to prevent corruption in the competition, including drug testing. And how then did they still have, quote, a non-compliant, unquote, event? The due diligence here, in effect, was done at the front end by WADA drug testing. 
Arguably, the IOC, WADA, and even Camilla Valiva had all done their part to participate in the uh, in the <clears throat> in, in in the matter. But Valiva's drug coast results didn't come back until a whopping 44 days later after she submitted her sample, well after the games began and Valiva had already begun competing. The due diligence failed to clear the red flags before the transaction proceeded. Finally, remediation. The DOJ's compliance guidance also tells us that in the face of previous violations, an organization must conduct an adequate and honest root cause analysis to understand both what contributed to the misconduct and the degree of remediation needed to prevent similar faults in the future. The IOC had already banned Russia from officially competing in the Olympic Games for four years of requiring the Russian athletes to compete under the flag of the Russian Olympic Committee. But was this remediation adequate? The remediation measure imposed on Russia obviously failed to identify the root cause of the doping in the first place. A pause on official participation in the Games did not affect the organizational culture chain requisite for good faith compliance. In the end, remediation is all about learning from your mistakes. Let's hope that the compliance world, not to mention the mega sports world, can also learn something from this one. Tom, can you tell us how a corporate culture can become corrupt? Yeah, Jay, this article comes to us from Tom Busson and Nitesh Singh uh, over from Corporate Compliance Insights. And it's an adaptation of a chapter in a book, I believe that these two gentlemen authored, but I'm not quite sure, called Compliance Management, a How-To Guide for Executives, Lawyers, and Other Compliance Professionals. And Jay, it really brings together some disparate threads around uh, how uh, corporate malfeasance takes root. And it starts with Mark uh, Whitaker, who, of course, was the uh, whistleblower at Adams Daniels Midland, uh, or Archer Daniels Midlands in the 90s. And he talks about his career advancing too quickly, and it was uh, really led him to believe that uh, he knew all the answers and he could get away with anything, and then the pressure to continue uh, to achieve uh, just all sort of overwhelmed him. And he listed 10 things that he would have done differently. Um, I think many of us um, have thought about some of these things as well. Next, he looks at the um, anatomy of a fraud and why um, ethical champions uh, really can help an organization Um, But there's three different types of people in the world identified by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner from Freakonomics fame, ethical champions who avoid uh, wrongdoing at all costs, wrongdoers who cannot resist uh, the urge to lie, cheat, and steal, and then the opportunists who do so when the situation arises. Then, of course, the fraud triangle, opportunity, pressure, and rationalization and uh, talks about that in the context of uh, the Robin Hood of Goldman Sachs, a secretary who stole a whopping $7.4 million by withdrawing it directly from her boss's personal accounts. Uh, they were so well off, it took them years to even notice the money was missing. So uh, I think the book is certainly going to be interesting and worthwhile, and this little teaser gives us a hint of what we might see. Jay, uh, how has corruption in the Russian military impacted the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. 
This is a fascinating article, Tom. It comes to us from GAB, the Global Anti-Corruption Blog, which is Professor Matthew Stevenson's blog. And he writes, or as he wrote this earlier this week, the tragic unjustified conflict in the Ukraine drags on with anguishing reports of civilian casualties and needless destruction mixed with encouraging news of the valor of the Ukrainian armed forces and their resolve of the Ukrainian people and their leaders. In trying to slow the Russian army's advance and deny Russia control of major cities, the Ukrainian military may have the help of an unexpected ally, corruption. That's right, corruption. That is, corruption of the Russian military and defense sector. Without taking anything away from the skill and bravery of the Ukrainian armed forces, many analysts have noted that invading Russian force appears to have been hampered by cheap and poorly maintained equipment, shortages of fuel, rations, and other supplies, and deficiencies in training and coordination. And some of these analysts have suggested that while no factor can explain fully Russia's poor showing in the field so far, pervasive corruption in the Russian defense sector may be one culprit. That probably shouldn't come as much of a surprise. The adverse impact of the defense sector's corruption on military effectiveness has been well documented and corruption has been pervasive in Russia's defense sectors for decades. True, if corruption or other factors have undercut the effectiveness of the Russian military, that was not so evident in previous conflicts, such as Russia's suppressions of the revolt in Chechnya, its war with Georgia, intervention in the Syrian civilian war, or even its earlier campaign in Ukraine in 2014. But as numerous commentators have observed, the current war in Ukraine is an altogether different beast, and Russia's deficiencies in areas like operations and maintenance, supply logistics and trainings, these are areas where widespread corruption are most likely to have an impact, and they're showing up much more clearly. To elaborate a bit, commentators on the Russian military affairs have highlighted the following possible corruption-related problems facing the Russian army. First, most directly, procurement-related corruption may be partly to blame for reported shortages of food, fuel, and other supplies. Corruption in the form of embezzlement or bribery also can lead to the purchase of substandard equipment, for example, by giving contract for equipment or maintenance to a less qualified supplier than is more willing, that is more willing to pay kickbacks. Three, the same type of corruption can also affect investment in training troops, especially those in positions that require high skill levels, such as combat pilots. And last, at the higher levels, corruption can undermine the quality of leadership on both the military and the civilian side. When people are promoted based on their connections or willingness to, quote, get along, unquote, or doing favors for the right people, they will tend to be less competent on average. In ordinary times, all of these problems, which are not unique to Russia, are cause for concern. And that's why many in the military and national security community have been emphasizing for years the importance of tracking corruption in the defense sector. Under current circumstances, Professor Stevenson, while grateful for the corruption of the Russian defense sector, he hopes that the problems in the sector turn out to be even worse and more consequential than we thought.
To be clear, he doesn't think we should exaggerate the impact of corruption on the current conflict. Yes, the Russians have logistical and operational problems, but the main reason for the unexpected slow pace of the Russian military advance has been the brave Ukrainian resistance, and he doesn't want anything in his post to be misconstrued as distracting from that. And the Russian logistical problems themselves have multiple causes. Corruption may be only one and may not even be the most important. Still, he does think it's interesting that all these problems that anti-corruption experts and national security specialists have been emphasizing over the years do seem to be concurrently manifesting themselves in the current invasion. Tom, we spoke about MTS a couple weeks ago. They've agreed to an extended monitorship of one year. Can you give us some insight? Sure. This time, Stu is from Dylan Tokar, our good friend and colleague over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Uh, the Russian uh, telecom company, MTS, has agreed to additional oversight of monitorship um, of one year as a part of its uh, 2019 deal. The agreement to extend... Uh, is may or may not be problematic in view of the uh, current Russian invasion. So I don't know how that's going to play into it if uh, U.S. companies are part of the monitorship, whether they can do so and whether MTS will agree to doing so going forward. Nevertheless, MTS uh, previously agreed to pay $850 million to resolve the charges of paying bribes to Gelnara Karamova, the daughter of Uzbekistan's former president. Uh, MTS said... Uh, the extra time will provide it with uh, the extension it needs to comply fully with the uh, 2019 agreement, but it's not because of any nefarious conduct that they've engaged in since that time. So uh, interesting. It's going to be probably even more interesting to see how this plays out, obviously with the um, Russian invasion and the Russian sanctions, Jay. Jay, uh, next up, what do you have for us? I've uh, got an article that we're picking up from NYU's Program on Corporate Compliance and Enforcement. It's from three attorneys from Debevoise and Plimpton, Avi Gesser, sorry, Joanna Skrzyfek, and Michael R. Roberts. And it's entitled, Data Minimization Recent Enforcement Actions Show Why Some Companies Need to Get Rid of Their Old Electronic Records. Since these attorneys last wrote about data minimization, there have been several regulatory developments that they uh, look at in this article that illustrate the increasing operational and regulatory risks of keeping large volumes of old data. As cyber threats continue to grow and consumers gain more privacy rights over their data, businesses need robust data minimization programs that can significantly reduce the amount of sensitive data that still remain on their servers. Here's three challenges for companies wanting to get out of old data. First, corporate cultural impediments. Due to departing employees in passing years, employees at companies often do not know why certain data was collected, what information is contained in various databases, and what company data is in the possession of vendors or certain data has been maintained up until now all of which results in the choice to simply continue to retain data out of an abundance of caution. Second, ownership and budget. 
Getting rid of large data sets does not fall neatly into any particular business function. Moreover, various parts of the organization, legal, compliance, IT, business, and risk, often have different views on what should be deleted and how it should be done. And third, legal and regulatory holds legal obligations to keep certain documents for litigation or regulatory compliance can complicate efforts to delete and destroy old documents. So here are six tips from the authors for overcoming the challenges of getting rid of your old and stale data. Start small. Consider imposing modest data retention restrictions at the outset rather than pursuing an ambitious broad strategy. Second, recognize that preservation rules have changed. Reassess the legal risk of keeping various large sets of old data against the risk of deleting them. Next, manage expensive legal holds. Some companies have hold notices in place on covered documents that are more than 10 years old, which significantly complicates efforts to get rid of old data. Automate the deletion of extremely old files. Some organizations have success getting rid of old data by automatically deleting files that are older than a certain time period, rather than relying on, relying on individuals to actively delete documents. Five, limit the ability to circumstance deletion. Organizations implementing automatic deletion programs should provide employees with several weeks' advance notice that electronic files in their possession that are more than a certain number of years old will be deleted. And finally, protect the data being retained. For data sets that cannot be deleted because of legal, regulatory, or business needs, companies should consider taking certain steps to reduce the cyber and privacy risks associated with these data sets. Here's the conclusion. In the last few years, data minimization has evolved from one of the ways that some companies reduce their data security and privacy risks to a regulatory requirement for most companies. As a result, for most organizations, it's now riskier than ever to hold on to your old data than it is to delete it. But identifying what data should be deleted and how best to do so is extremely is an extremely complicated exercise that is best done incrementally and thoughtfully. Spoken like lawyers indeed. Tom, what's up with Elon Musk and his agreement with the SEC and a consent decree? So Jay, I think most of our listeners will recall that Elon Musk in 2018 uh, tweeted out that he was going to take the company private at $420 a share, only to withdraw that seven days later after wild gyrations in the stock price. He agreed to a consent order or a consent decree with the Securities and Exchange Commission of paying a $20 million fine, and that he wouldn't do so again, and that his tweets would be reviewed by in-house legal at Tesla. Well, he wants out of that agreement now because um, he meant it then, but he doesn't mean it now. And uh, he's asked the court. That's that's a, a well-known legal strategy in Texas. I'm not sure about California, but yeah, I meant it then, but I don't mean it now. And he doesn't mean it now. And he wants to go off and chit-chat and talk and uh, talk about, I guess, the things that interest him. And he believes that his First Amendment rights are being um, hounded by the Securities and Exchange Commission in a prior restraint sort of way. Uh, interestingly, he claims that he signed the consent decree due to economic duress that Tesla was in, and it couldn't take on the uh, SEC, although he did agree to the $20 million fine. So a little uh, a little con- interesting on his allegations. 
He's also uh, tried to quash some subpoenas. The SEC has issued to them. Um, so the court has not ruled. They have not set a time for hearing, and we'll have to uh, continue this story. But uh, Elon is trying to um, get out of his uh, consent decree. So, Jay, what do Wachtell Lipton lawyers have for us on corporate cooperation with the Department of Justice? All right. Well, this comes to us uh, from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. And the three attorneys are John Savaris, Ralph Levine, and Sarah Eddy. As the attorneys noted in the year-end post, DOJ previewed last fall a crackdown on corporate misconduct and the resurrection of Obama-era policies that make it harder for companies to earn cooperation credit and leniency. Last week, when speaking at the ABA Institute on White Collar Crime, where I was playing hooky, Attorney General Merrick Garland and Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, Kenneth Polite, furthered that message. Companies under investigation must identify everyone connected to the suspected misconduct, and creditworthy remediation may, in some circumstances, mean clearing or rather cleaning house at the top, even where the most senior executives were not directly involved. In his speech, A.G. Garland underscored DOJ's renewed focus on individual corporate malefactors and announced that the DOJ was backing this commitment with more funding, more investigation, investigative agents, more DOJ's attorneys, and force multipliers to support white-collar enforcement activities. One force multiplier is corporate cooperation. To be eligible for any cooperation credit, companies must provide DOJ with all non-privileged information about all individuals involved in and connected up to the con- connected to the conduct under investigation, regardless of their position, status, or seniority, and regardless of whether a company deems their involvement as substantial. In his own remarks, AAG Polite. Uh, added another element. True cooperation, he said, may in some circumstances circumstances require removal of top leadership, even if not involved in the wrongdoing, to rectify a compliance culture that facilitated or turned a blind eye to wrongdoing. Even if there is not any evidence that a CEO personally committed the crime, a cooperation should a corporation should examine whether a change in leadership at the top is necessary. Because the CEO modeled poor ethical behavior for the workforce or fostered a climate in which subordinates committed wrongdoing with the intent to benefit the company with permitted weak internal controls that allowed criminals of individuals to go undetected. If there ever was a time for companies to examine their compliance regimes, this is it. As AAG Polite made clear, companies must have a compliance program that ensures employees are informed, trained, and empowered to choose right over wrong, and that immediately detects, remediates, disciplines, and then adapts when the wrong choice is made. While the hope is that DOJ will apply these new policies thoughtfully and cautiously, companies should expect more searching examinations of their compliance culture and corporate responses to detective wrongdoing. Tom, what is on Mike Volkov's mind? 
Jay, Mike Volkoff in his blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, says that there's a force multiplier between ethics and sustainability. And Jay, what he does is he takes a look at uh, ESG and specifically the S in ESG around sustainability. And he says that if you have a good and strong ethical culture, uh, it will uh, lead towards sustainability. Obviously, this includes things like uh, institutional justice and institutional fairness, DEI, uh, and a wide variety of other employee uh, and person factors. But that uh, this is not a moral judgment. Um, it's just that if you have a good ethical background or an ethical culture at your organization, you're going to be able to um, understand the uh, interplay between ethical decisions and corporate values. And this will help corporations really to, to succeed in the S in ESG. Uh, and really, uh, I thought it was an interesting way uh, to look at this, that saying that Ethics really underlines a good, solid uh, ESG program. Uh, I think you and I have focused on certainly the G uh, and in the environmental realm um, as well. But Mike takes a look at it from the S perspective. So as always, great analysis by Mike. What do you have for our final article, Jay? This one's interesting. It comes to us from The Dig, which is Francine McKenna's article, uh, not her website, and uh, this, unfortunately, comes behind a paywall, but we can share a preview. And the article is written by Dan Hoikowitz and Francine, and it's entitled Privacy, Plunder, and Non-Fungible Tokens, Problems on the Open Sea. Bloomberg's Matt Robinson reported on March 2nd that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is scrutinizing creators of NFT, which stands for non-fungible tokens, and the cryptocurrency exchanges where they trade, to determine if some of these assets run afoul of the agency's rules, citing the usual people familiar with this matter. It's another shot across the bow for proponents of crypto assets. NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, are digital assets that are unique and not interchangeable. Think more like a snowflake rather than fungible, which think about being a grain of corn in a silo. NFTs are more like diamonds, real estate, or even professional sports trading cards because they have unique characteristics that can drive their overall value. Digital assets, oops, sorry, digital assets cousins are Bitcoin and Ethereum, and fiat currencies such as the US dollar are fungible since one unit of a Bitcoin or one U.S. dollar is as good or equal to another. Bloomberg says the focus of the SEC's probe is whether non-fungible tokens, in particular those that represent fractional ownership of art, real estate, or sports memorabilia, for example, are securities and should therefore be regulated like securities. The SEC's enforcement attorneys have sent subpoenas to all kinds of creators and exchanges demanding information about their token offerings. According to data from Chain Analysis, NFT activity ballooned in 2021 to about $44 billion, that's right with a B, worth of crypto sent to smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain during 2021. This is up from a pedestrian $106 million in 2020. Francine had warned that there would be a reckoning on February 9th in an op-ed on the FT. 
Trickier accounting challenges might be coming. Take the hot market for NFTs or non-fungible token art, for example. How should companies record NFTs in their accounts? Things seem to be boiling over at the SEC, and 2022 might be the year when we finally make some headway in regulating NFT and crypto exchanges. Tom, that's the last of our articles for the week. What do you have in terms of our cornucopia of podcasts to, po- to highlight this week? Before we get to podcasts and other highlights, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. So, Jay, we have your affiliated monitor colleague, Audrey Harris, who is our guest this month on The Compliance Life. This week, she moved into the CCO chair, and we detail that in episode two. I'm back with Megan Doherty uh, from One Stone Creative, my uh, creative producer on multiple podcasts, as we move through the full MCU series. Uh, In our last episode, we had The Winter Soldier coming up. On Saturday will be Guardians of the Galaxy. Upcoming episodes include Guardian of the Galaxy 2 and The Age of Ultron. David Simon returns for a third episode on his journey through the Oxford Executive MBA program in a yank at Oxford. And uh, he tells us about what he's studying, uh, his experience with writing papers, exams, and some of the fun things he's doing in Oxford. On the... Hill Country Podcast, I have a dear friend, Craig Walcott. How long have Craig been a dear friend? Well, we became friends in college. That's how long ago. We practiced law together uh, in the 80s. We tried cases together. Well, he moved out to the Hill Country about 10 years before I did, so I was able to sit down with him. He's still practicing law and kicking. So I asked him about uh, what was it like trying cases in rural Texas as opposed to the big city, and he had some great stories and anecdotes and Talks about being a trial lawyer in the Hill Country of Texas. So, um, Jay, uh, we also have a special insert uh, from uh, your colleague, Audrey Harris. You want to tell us about that and or tell us about some of your reflections from uh, the ABA White Collar Conference? Sure. So last week, uh, myself, Audrey, and Vin DeSiani from Affiliated Monitors uh, all descended upon San Francisco for the ABA White Collar Conference. Uh, The most recent conference prior to this one was last October, and it was held in Miami Beach. And everyone has told the stories of DAG Monaco and what is going to be happening in 2022, and when will we first start seeing some enforcement from the Biden administration. Well, we had a lot of people in San Francisco. It almost doubled from about 250 people to 500. Uh, Lots of good conversations and catching up with people. Unfortunately, we still haven't seen anything pop in terms of major enforcement actions. And uh, one may say the government's been a little bit distracted for over these two last two weeks. But um, in terms of the articles we discussed today, uh, we gave you some highlights from Merrick Garland. Uh, we especially talked about Professor Stevenson's article about corruption. So there is no doubt that when the government sends people to speak to us, that they uh, are sending us a message. Could have used Western Union, but they're using speeches at conferences. So um, 
What will be interesting is when you listen to the uh, remarks that Audrey has, she's really taken some uh, great and thoughtful information and distilled it down. Uh, ABA White Collar Crime is here to stay, and the next one will be in London in the spring. So uh, it was great to get back out there and um, see people in the community. And uh, hopefully this will be something that will, a trend that will continue on further in 2022. Jay told you that his colleague Audrey Harris attended the ABA White Collar Conference. Well, now we have a special report from her on that conference. The government speaks at the ABA White Collar Institute. And the messages? Three repeats, three new messages, and three areas to watch. Audrey Harris, Affiliated Monitors. Last week was the American Bar Association's 37th annual National Institute on White Collar Crime in San Francisco. With COVID impacts lifting, this event was more well attended in person, including by U.S. enforcement and regulators such as DOJ, the SEC, the CFTC, and the Commerce Department. And while it didn't have the large policy-type proclamations of Miami's 36th White Collar Institute back in October with the Monaco Memo, the old axiom holds true that when the government speaks, they are usually trying to send a message. And last week, there were speeches from the Attorney General himself, the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, and panels with his Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, as well as the SEC's Director of Enforcement, the CFT's, uh, CFTC's Acting Director of Division of Enforcement, and particularly timely, Commerce, Commerce Department's Assistant Secretary for Export Enforcement was there to talk about export controls and the Bureau of Industry and Security in a time of Russian conflicts and Chinese tensions. And in here were quite a few messages. Some were messages repeated for emphasis and things that we've heard before. And there were also a few new messages and also a few areas to watch. So instead of a top 10 today, I'm going to go for a rule of three with three government messages repeated for emphasis, three new messages, and three areas to watch. So starting with the three repeat messages. And as to be expected, there was a lot of discussion and re-emphasis of the Monaco memo. So starting with one, the first repeated message, individual accountability. So the drumbeat continues for prioritizing individual executive enforcement. And as one government representative said, quote, that corporate resolutions will not buy individual peace, unquote. But interesting that there seemed to be a general agreement on the key points of individual accountability and voluntary disclosure and even corporate cooperation, that the changes from the Yates memo through to the Monaco memo were really ones of emphasis and tone, not so much substance. And that those of us in the industry know, though, emphasis and tone do matter, not as much as budget and resources. Um, but that's one point I'll talk about later. So our second big repeat message, compliance matters and monitors will be used. So we heard clear messages and some interesting personal perspectives on compliance, especially from the SEC's Director of Enforcement and the Criminal Assistant Attorney General, as he mentioned, a former CCO himself. The SEC message that, that books and records is core to what they do. And with a reference to the recent J.P. Morgan securities matter, noted that paper is not enough. 
and you have to implement and follow it. They really emphasized here the need to tailor your policies to industry risks. The AAG emphasized what he called investment in compliance and saying not just money here. He said, I was a CCO. I want to know that on the day that a tough decision has to be made, does the executive making it have the information, the training, and the empowerment to make the right decision? Or if that doesn't happen, can you detect, investigate, and remediate it? He said, tell me about the people, not just the money. Indicating here that CCOs should be looking even more to cultural reviews, focus groups, and other tools to proactively test the risk owner's understandings, and perhaps the delta between the recognized tone at the top and what's really happening in the application in the middle. And yes, um, it was clear, if companies don't do that proactive work, if they don't test and find that delta, um, and they don't look at cultural reviews in this space, that the administration will not be shy um, from resolution alternatives that include compliance commitments, including monitorships. So for our third repeat message, gatekeepers, the government's friends and the government's enemies, both the DOJ, the SEC, and the Southern District of New York multiple times went out of their way to repeat that gatekeepers are a focus of their investigation and enforcement priorities, including not only investment advisors and underwriters, but as well as lawyers and auditors who all received call-outs from the government. However, at the same time, we also heard Attorney General Garland call out defense counsel to corporations and boards as one of DOJ's, quote, force multipliers, especially in their role in voluntary disclosure and cooperation. So those are our big three repeat um, messages. We continue to hear about big data and the use of data analytics with comments about data-driven mandates, but this is really a to-be-determined area, as we'll talk about in some of the new budget announcements. And the issues, of course, of privilege and internal investigations, as well as Brady, are all always on Defense Council's mind, so we're discussed throughout the ABA, but the government weren't really messaging hard in these areas. Okay, so what's new? What are the three new messages that I saw of the ABA from the government? One, more money, more resources are likely to mean more investigations. In investigations, it's follow the money, right? Well, it's the same can be said of enforcement predictions. If you want to know what's next, watch the enforcer's budgets. Watch their hiring. Well, Attorney General Garland said his um, 2022 budget includes 120 additional DOJ attorneys targeting fraud. That's on top of the 34 new fraud section attorneys from 2021. He also noted that his budget has $325 million to fund new FBI agents. And this includes embedding squads of FBI agents to focus on data analytics and anomalies indicative of fraud. See, I promise to come back to data analytics. Okay, for our second new message, pandemic and healthcare fraud 2.0. Recognizing that one government, as one government panelist said, where there is opportunity for profit, there's opportunity for mischief, unquote. There was a continued recognition of CARES Act and healthcare fraud enforcement as a priority. 
and impact of the pandemic. But there was another call out of two different types of healthcare fraud, newer focuses, perhaps a healthcare fraud 2.0 initiative. One, there was a recognition that pandemic has changed the way healthcare operates and has changed the business model, including telemedicine. And has created a new, um, that new creation, that new business model has created potential new opportunities for fraud, both in procurement, but also in the fraud of the level of care. Second, there's a, there was talk around the opioid crisis. I'll call out to looking at the impacts and fraud around drug treatment facilities. With a focus on the pharma prosecutions that we all know about, it can only be expected that DOJ will turn its eyes to other parts of the business stream related to drug addiction. And we did see some reference to that in government representative remarks. Our third new message uh, from the ABA White Collar Institute were changes to prioritize victim impacts. Now, this primarily comes from the Assistant Attorney General from Criminal Division's speech and announcement that he is creating a position of victim coordinator in the division, and that also the Criminal Division will be addressing victims' issues as part of Philip Memo factors, and defense counsel should be planning accordingly. In addition, he will also be asking, and the department will be asking for bifurcated plea and sentencing proceedings to allow for post-plea submissions to what he called hear the voices of the victims. So those are our three new messages from the ABA White Collar Institute um, uh, for government enforcement messages. Now let's talk about three trends to watch in government enforcement that came out of the Institute. First, private funds private equity, and venture capital. These industries were peppered throughout discussions on enforcement priorities, as were referenced to SPACs, with a clear warning by the SEC to watch your disclosures and make sure you have controls in place. So this is something that I've observed for years in corporate compliance, that it's not just you are who represents you when it comes to third parties, which is really a focus of a lot of corporate compliance programs. And then there was you or there is, I should say, you are who supplies you and that focus on supply chain due diligence. Um, or even more recently, you are what you buy and that focus on merger and acquisition due diligence. But now there's also an increased focus on your investments. And so now it may be you are what you invest in. And hearing this industry peppered throughout enforcement priorities was a real key and a real indication of this is an area to watch. Second, another area to watch is these emerging risks around cyber, crypto, and ESG. While there's no big policy announcements that were made, these terms were continually mentioned by government representatives. The SDNY noted that um, incidents of ransomware and cyber reach, breach were actually 20 times increased in 2021 in the New York area. And while noting that there were more ads for crypto than for beer on the Super Bowl this year, there weren't any large announcements Ray crypto either at the ABA. Rather, those came in the Biden administrative's announcements this week. 
But one government panelist may have had hit the nail on the head when she said, many lawyers don't understand crypto, me included. Well, representatives also beyond um, these two emerging areas also reminded the audience that ESG and environmental justice were part of some of President Biden's first actions in office and an area where they're seeing increasing resources. So again, these are spaces to watch. Finally, the last horizon scanning prediction I have, number three, keep an eye on commerce and export controls. The combination of current global environment and leadership leads me to believe that we'll be seeing a more active Bureau of Industry and Security. The Assistant Secretary for Export Enforcement, Matt Axelrod, showed his DOJ background at the ABA by laying out his two current active policy initiatives around reviewing the use of administrative enforcement of power and voluntary disclosure. Well, those two sound familiar. So my prediction and my places to watch is watch commerce here and watch whether or not their independent enforcement seat at the table starts to grow. Well, there's my rule of three, three repeat messages, three new messages, and three areas to watch. Thanks so much. So, Jay, uh, with that, um, you want to take us home? Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor, and you can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. We would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 294, For the week ending March 11th, 2022, the Remember the Alamo edition. We'd like to thank you for spending some of your week or weekend with us. And we look forward to speaking to you next week when we take a look at the week that was in FCPA. Take care and we'll see you soon. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you'll check out my recent podcast series, The Science of Star Wars. If you love Star Wars or even are mildly interested, I have a great five-part series where I speak to uh, academically trained astrophysicist Dr. Ben Lockwin on issues such as traveling through hyperspace, fighting with lightsabers, the Death Star, robots and cyborgs, and mechanical prosthetics. It's a lot of fun. Learn some science and get to talk about Star Wars. Please check it out. The podcast series is Greeting Felicitations, and it's on the Compliance Podcast Network. We hope you will join Jay and I next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.